Uh, how many know we could use uh, the return of Jesus about right now? Uh, you know, when you, when you look around the world, you see the world has absolutely gone mad and lost its mind uh, for the most part. And, you know, whenever I lived overseas, um, Loretta and I used to, when we would come back to the States, we used to, I used to say this phrase quite often, and that phrase was, uh, when we were living overseas, I used to say, we live in the future. And when we come back to America, we've come back to the past to tell you what the future looks like if we don't change. And most Americans, when, we, when they heard me say that, the, re, the reaction was a bit of a scoffing thing in the sense that we're America and that will never happen to us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. What is happening in America now is happening in Europe probably 10 or 15 years ago. And if we don't make a correction, a course correction, then we're going to find ourselves in a place where we're going to wonder if there is any return for us except a visitation of the return of Jesus. And I believe that we as Americans can find ourselves with our gaze upon Jesus once again and can see our nation turn back to God as it was originally intended to be. Amen? But that's going to require a few things. And I believe that, that what I'm going to talk about today is a part of what we're experiencing as we continue to approach the end of time. How many know the revelation is a wonderful thing? And we live our life based in revelation. And when revelation and reality meet, then things change. The day, the day I had the revelation that Jesus was the Messiah, that revelation touched my reality and my life changed and I was born again. The day I had the revelation that I was righteous, that revelation of righteousness touched my reality and it changed the way I prayed and the way I lived my life. When the revelation that I was the healed, when that revelation touched my, my life, my reality changed and I began to walk out my healing. On the day that I understood that my, I, was, I was blessed in the Lord, that revelation of prosperity, when I got that, something natural happened and that is my finances began to change. When revelation touches reality, reality must therefore change. And so we live our life based upon the revelation that we have. And the Bible, of course, is full of the revelation of God. In fact, we have an entire book called the book of Revelation. And so all these things work together to position the body of Messiah, the body of Christ, to position us in a place to engage the time and the place and the space that God has put us in at this moment. How many of you know that God knew us before we were formed in our mother's womb? So we're living in a moment in time designed by God. In other words, we were not allowed to be born in the 1800s. How many who like air conditioning say amen to that? Okay, so, so God chose that we would live right now, not back in the, in the 1700s and the 1600s. He didn't choose for us to live in the past, although he knew us before we were even formed. He knew us before time began, but he chose for you and I to live at this moment of time. And there are things that are being revealed, and there's a world that we're living in that needs us to walk in a revelation of Jesus and a revelation of who we are in Jesus, that if we do that, will affect not only ourselves, but the world that we live in, and will prepare us for the return of Jesus. How many know that we're closer to the return of Jesus today than any other generation before us? We're closer now than any other generation before us. And we, and we know we live our lives ready because he could come back before we get up in the morning. Are you ready for that? 
Are we ready to engage and encounter the Messiah? Are we ready to engage the returning, conquering King Jesus? I pray your answer to that is yes. I'm going to look here in the book of the book of John. If you would turn with me, please. There, John chapter number 21. Loretta, could you hand me my water, please? John chapter number 21, and we're going to look here at verse number 25, starting there, and we're going to see here that Jesus did great and mighty works. How many know Jesus was a miracle worker? Amen. And his miracles, sometimes we see his miracles, and as incredible as what they were, we need to understand that every miracle that we have recorded in the Bible for us was recorded for a specific purpose. It's not there just to show us that he did something incredible, but it's there to carry a message for us, to bring a revelation to us of an aspect of Jesus. Look what it says here in John's Gospel, chapter number 21, verse number 25. This is at the end of the book of John. It says, And there were many other things that Jesus did, which, if they were written one by one, I suppose that not even the world itself could contain the books that were written. Can I say amen to that? I mean, think about this. So John is saying, now Jesus' ministry was how long? Three and a half years. He did so much. In three and a half years, that John said, if I wrote down everything he did one by one, he said, I suppose there would not be enough books in the world to contain everything he did. Your Jesus was a multitasker. I mean, this man was busy, and he was about his father's business. Amen? Now, here's the thing. You have a Bible in your hand, don't you? Are there other books in the world besides your Bible? Then that means the works that Jesus did, not all of them are recorded in the Bible. Not, although John said if, he, if everything he did we wrote down, that would be more than what the world could contain. However, the Holy Spirit chose only a handful of miracles to write down for us. And that's significant and that's telling. As a matter of fact, let's go on to the next Next verse here, let's look here in, uh, uh, that was in John uh, chapter number, that was 21. Look in, let's go take one uh, chapter back, John chapter 20, look at verse number 30 and 31. So John is writing again, he says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So he already tells us that there are a lot of things Jesus did that are not written here. In other words, I'm not going to write down everything he did. I'm only going to write down some things he did. And he goes on to say this, but these that are written, these that are written, but these are written that you might do what? That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing you might have faith in his name. He says, if we wrote down everything he did, the books of the world could not contain it. I'm not going to write down everything he did. I'm only going to write down some of the things he did, but the things I write down are enough for you to believe that he is who he said he is, and for you to have faith in his name. So the miracles that were given to us by the Holy Ghost through the apostolic writers are sufficient enough to feed the body of Christ for thousands of years. These these miracles then are hand-selected by the Holy Ghost. That's a pretty amazing thought if you think about it. So so these, these miracles, and there's only 37 of them. Only 37. So you have 37 miracles 
that the Holy Spirit handpicks. How many know that 37 can be written down on one page? And John said, if I write them all down one by one, there's not enough books in the world to contain them. So these are very selected groups of, of miracles. These are miracles hand-selected by the Holy Ghost. As a matter of fact, scholars tell us that of all the, the life of Jesus, we only have written down for us 17 days of his life. So the Gospels only contain 17 days of the life and ministry of Jesus. And in 17 days, you're working 37 miracles. You're doing a lot, and not all of them are even written down for us. Think about that for a minute. Now, his ministry was 1,259 days. That's three and a half years based upon a lunar calendar, which is 354 days a year. 1,254 days, and only 17 days are written down, which means we have 1.5% of his ministry written down in that book of ours. So the Holy Spirit looks at, if you let me to allow me a little bit of poetic license here, the Holy Spirit looks at all 1,250, what did I say? 54 days, right? So he looks at all those days, and the Holy Spirit says, what does the body need to survive on, to live on? What could I feed them for the next two or 3,000 years? And he selects only 17 days out of that entire group, and he takes those, and he gives us the gospel. So these 17 days must be hugely important. As a matter of fact, the miracles that are written down must be phenomenally important to feed the body of Messiah, the body of Christ for 2,000, maybe 3,000 years. People say, man, when we get to heaven, what are we going to do? I mean, what, what, are we going to sit around and play harps on clouds and, 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 and sing? I think one of the things we're going to be doing is learning about the rest of the 1,250-something and, days we didn't learn about yet. And if 17 days can feed us for two or 3,000 years, how many can 1,200 days feed us on? We're talking about probably 200,000 years we can feed off of just the first three and a half years of Jesus' life and ministry. And that's just the beginning of our journey. And of those 17 days, 74% of those 17 days, in other words, 74% of the 1.5% happened on a Jewish feast day. Thank you for your enthusiasm. So the Holy Spirit looks across all the days and lifts out these particular days on purpose because he's going to deliver a message of Jesus so that we believe in who he is. He is, we're filled with faith. We know he is the Messiah. We know he is the Christ. We know he is the Son of God. We have faith in his name because these miracles carry a message with them. And of all the miracles that he did, I think everybody might have one of their favorite ones. Come on, somebody throw a favorite miracle out at me. The leper. Anybody else got one? Issue of blood. Walking on the water. Calming the storm. Feeding the multitude. Incredible miracles that he did. And the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to lift this one out because not only is this incredible, but it's actually going to carry a message of who Jesus is so my people can believe and feed off of that for 2,000 years. That's a big deal. Now, of all the miracles he did, I'm going to talk about possibly the least popular one today. <laughs> the least popular, the least preached about, the one that most people like to not really get into too much detail 
I'm going to talk about his first miracle. And what was his first miracle? Turn water into wine. Now think about it for a moment. If you're going to launch an international global ministry, <laughs> you're going to launch it out there on this day. What? And you have this arsenal of miracles you could do. Which one might have you chosen to launch out there? Would you have actually chosen this one? Probably not. We would have gone for the more spectacular thing, you know. We would have gone for like, hey, hey let me walk on the water and let, let me, you know, let me, let me do that. I mean, we would have thought, probably thought of something um, a, in our mind a big deal. But this is a big deal. Because out of all the potential, the possibilities the Holy Spirit could have chosen, he wanted to make sure that we knew about the first miracle that he ever did. Why? Because the first miracle tells us a great deal about how, who Jesus is. And I believe that what he's telling us here is important as we walk through an understanding and a revelation of who Jesus is because each miracle does reveal an aspect of his, of his, of his divinity, of his messiahship, of his, of his Godhead, of his, of his humanity, of his, of, his, um, of his prophetic ministry. But all the things that he was, each one reveals an aspect of himself. And so with that in mind, let's, let's look here in, in, uh, in John chapter 2. So this is the beginning of the first miracle. So the first miracle, he, he turns water into wine. How many of you would have chosen to start your international ministry with refreshments? <laughs> That's what he does. He starts his, his first miracle is with refreshments. So how many know if he's starting his first miracle with refreshments, <laughs> this has got to be a pretty significant refreshment. This is not just some random thing he's doing here. But what he's about to do is about to declare to everybody who he is. And we know the story. But let's go ahead and read it anyway. John's Gospel, chapter number 2, verse 1 through 11. It says, on the third day, they were at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And they, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said, they have no wine. And Jesus said unto him, woman, let me just say this to you. It's biblical to call your mama woman, guys. For, I, for, as, a, as a young boy in, in my teenage years, when I was reading the scriptures and I saw that Jesus called his mama woman, that's what I call my mama today. I call her woman. She didn't like it, but, but, but I'm telling her I am being biblical, woman. That's what I'm doing. I don't call her all the time, but you know, whenever I feel like I need to, when she calls me James Scott, I say woman. So we gotta go back and forth. He says, "Woman." He says, "What? What does it concern you to? What does that have to do with me? My hour is not yet come." His mother said, "Whatever he says to you, do it." And we make a big deal about uh, that, and we focus on that, about whatever he says. And that's, and that's a good thing to focus on from time to time. But I want us to get at the actual miracle itself, because the miracle is written down, according to John, it's written down that you might believe and understand something about who Jesus is. So, it's, so it goes on to say, there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, each containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. That was 20 or 30 gallons apiece. So Jesus said to them, fill the water pots. They filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, Draw me out some, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. So he took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that had been made wine and did not know from whence it came, but the servants knew that it had been, uh, 
that they had drawn it from the water. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Everybody say the bridegroom. The bridegroom. And, and he said to them, every man at the beginning sets out good wine, and after they well drunk, they're then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. The amount of, you take the amount of gallons, he, he, he figured up there's about five bottles uh, that you could produce per, uh, per gallon. And so Jesus made enough wine for about 750 people. Goes on to say, this beginning of science Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and he manifested his glory. This was the beginning, and he did what? Manifested his glory. And how did he manifest his glory? By turning water into wine. Does that sound glorious to you? I mean, be honest and think about it. Does that really sound like a glorious miracle to you? Now, from God's perspective, from the writing of the Holy Ghost, from heaven's purview, God says that was glorious. So maybe what's happening at the water turning to wine is much more than just turning water into wine, but it's the message the water and the wine carry behind the miracle itself. He goes on to say here, he goes on to say, and he did manifest his glory. I'm sorry. And he did manifest his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after he went down to Capernaum, his mother and his brothers and disciples, they did not stay there many days. Why was it that Jesus would start his whole ministry at a wedding? He starts his ministry at a wedding. And at the wedding, he's the one who makes the wine. And the Holy Spirit says, He manifested his glory when he did this. And the result was people believed in who he was through this miracle that he did. And sometimes we we don't talk too much about this because if you talk too much about this, you have to mention the word wine too much. And we don't like doing that in church settings. But I want you to understand that what the Holy Spirit is trying to pull out here is that something significant happened at this moment. It was the bridegroom, this is why the governor of the feast, he called the bridegroom and says, hey, tell me about this wine. It was the responsibility of the bridegroom to prepare and to bring the wine for the wedding feast. But when the bridegroom was called to ask about the wine, he had no idea what what was going on because the real bridegroom had provided the wine for the feast. Jesus was beginning his ministry with the revelation that he is the bridegroom. And if you know anything about the ministry of Jesus, not only was this the first miracle that he launched to launch his ministry, but how many know the very last thing that's going to happen is his, in his ministry, he's going to have a wedding supper. So the very beginning and the very end, these are bookmarked with a wedding, and he is the bridegroom of this wedding. I believe as we get closer to the end of time, a revelation of Jesus being the bridegroom is going to begin to dominate our theology and dominate our teaching. And we're going to see that here as we continue to walk through the scriptures and see how he does this. As a matter of fact, not only does this happen, not only do we see this, and we, we looking into the future, we know that he is going to be the bridegroom, but he is actually, to people of that day, he was preaching something that, His glory was manifest, and disciples believed on him. Before the time of Jesus, there was a a Jewish theology, and this is what they believed. They believed that the Messiah, when he showed up, would be a winemaker. 
Now think about that. This is what was expected Messiah to do before Messiah actually shows up. He would be a maker of wine. The mountains would flow with wine, and Jesus, or they say they believe, and the Messiah would serve the wine at the wedding banquet in the Garden of Eden, inaugurating the Messianic Age. This was embedded within the context of what the Jewish people already were expecting Messiah to do. In fact, they were already anticipating that God was the bridegroom of the Jewish people. So when Jesus shows up doing what he did, it demonstrated his glory. And what better way to inaugurate your ministry than to declare to everyone that I am the long-awaited bridegroom to prepare wine for my wedding banquet. He is in preparation to reveal himself as this great bridegroom, which, of course, when you have a bridegroom, of course, you're also going to have a, a bride. That's right. Just like a king has a kingdom, a bridegroom has a, a bride. And I know that a lot of us guys we have a hard time associating ourselves with a bride. So we're not talking here about being slapped a white dress on when we get to heaven, gentlemen, okay? But it's interesting, interesting to me that many times when we hear this particular thing about we are the bride of Christ, sometimes people will say, well, I really don't identify that well with being the bride. But I don't ever hear anybody say those things when you talk about being sheep. Anybody hear a sheep? We're all sheep, right? But, but we're, not, we're not actually literal sheep, but we are metaphorically and we are, in fact, uh, his sheep. We know him as our shepherd. Sheep need to be protected. They need to be led. They need to be fed. They need to be guided. He is our shepherd. We are his sheepfold. Very few people say, I have a hard time identifying as a building, even though the Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Hey, boy, do you see any shingles on my head? I don't understand that thing about being... But we understand, we get it, we know that we, that we house the, the, the Holy Spirit, that we are meant to be pure and holy and, and remove those things that defile out of the temple. We are a body, and we get it, we are a body, but there's no one who literally believes they're a walking around eyeball or just a walking around big toe. As one gentleman said, I'm just a hangnail on the body of Christ. That's not what we're talking about either. We, we get the fact, this is a functional thing. But when it comes to the bride, the bride is a positional place with the strongest covenantal relationship with God that anyone could ever know about. And I really want us to grab a hold. I want to invite you today into a journey. And this topic is so big, I can only introduce you to it today. But I want to invite you into a pursuit of your relationship with God where you begin to find him as your bridegroom. We begin to develop and cultivate a relationship of, of love and adoration and passion for the things of God. Pastor Greg and I were talking uh, last night and how that sometimes we can, if we're not careful, we can break down our Christian faith into formulas. Well, let's confess this three, three times and say that nine times and pray this four times and read this chapter twice and, and stand on one leg and spit in the sea. I mean, we, can, we can come up with all these formulas and if you come up with too many formulas, what you do is you have the 15 keys and the 17 points, the 97 ways of being a better you. As opposed to seeing that this book, this story, is not about a formula, but about a person. It's not just a story about how to get something done, but it's a story about how to get to know someone that the story is about. This is a book about a relationship between God and his people. The story between a bride and a bridegroom. 
a relationship, a covenantal relationship that builds throughout time. And hopefully we'll begin to see that as we get closer. This has always been a part, this is important as we understand, as we begin this story, it's important to understand that we are, that what we're tapping in here today, when Jesus came and he did this, the reason I said this is always in Jewish theology is because all throughout the Bible, the theme of the bride and the bridegroom is everywhere. This is not something new. How many know there's nothing new under the sun? This is not. So what we have today was fully anticipated from the people that went before us. If I, for example, wrote a book and I gave you this book, and in this book you were reading along, and in the first chapter, and I was telling stories and illustrations, and in the first chapter you saw a line that said, Beloved, we are gathered here today. That might, bing, ring a bell on your head. And what, what, where does that come from? A wedding ceremony. And you, you probably know that. And then you go, oh, that's interesting. And then you go to the next chapter, and you're reading along, and you're reading all the stories and illustrations. All of a sudden, you see another line that says, it says, well, God has joined together, let no man put asunder. You're like, what? I also know that from the wedding story. Then you go to the next chapter, and you're reading along here, and you see the phrase, for better or for worse. You go to the next chapter, and you say, for richer or for poor. The next chapter, you know, all of a sudden, you realize, you know what? There's a theme going through Scott's book. And he's bringing us along because we know the wedding ceremony story, the words we all of a sudden start saying, wait a minute, maybe I need to go back to the beginning and read because I think what Scott's doing, he's trying to lead us on a path to reveal to us something, obviously, about a wedding ceremony somewhere. And if you look at the scriptures, you can see that these are exactly the same things that God is doing throughout the Bible. He's leading us on a journey of exploration of a relationship that is so intimate, a relationship that is so deep, a relationship that is so powerful that this, I believe, is the revelation that we see manifesting in the church in relationship-wise as we approach the end of, of time. Look what it says here in Jeremiah chapter number 2. I'm only going to read a couple of these to you. Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2. It says this. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember you the loving kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. The Lord is saying, I remember when you went into the wilderness, right after, right after you came out of, out of Egypt, right after Passover, you came into the land of Egypt, and I remember you. I remember you, Israel. I remember what it was like in the youth of our betrothal and how you, you went after me and you, and you sought me and you, you looked for me and you were seeking after me. I remember the relationship, Israel, you and I used to have at that point, at that time. And we find this happening all throughout the Bible. God even has a prophet. If you remember Hosea, he says, I want you to go and I want you to marry a harlot because your marriage to her shows my marriage relationship to Israel and to myself. And you're going to be a living example of what this marriage relationship looks like and how it's all going to disintegrate, but how I'm going to win her back and how I'm going to pursue her. The whole story of our book is a story of a bridegroom who is in pursuit of his bride. <laughs> and any one of you who are married, you know it's the most intimate and passionate display that you can possibly have. When Loretta and I started dating, it was very much, I mean, when we, when we started liking each other, she, uh, let me be honest, gentlemen, she chased me like, the, like an animal. She was after me. <laughs> what? Don't lie. Well, I'm preaching this morning, so. so there, there, there's, there's a pursuit. 
There's a pursuit, and some of you had a harder pursuit than others, and some of you had to, you know, what was that financial thing? You say, hey, listen, uh, you know, here, here's a ring. Here, I, I, I'm, I'm used to pull out every possible weapon out of my arsenal I can. You know, you're going to say yes to me eventually, and you just wear her down, you know, or whatever. But, but, you're, but there's a pursuit that goes on. And you think about it, why does every society in the world have weddings? No matter what culture you're in, African, Asian, European, South American. Why does every culture have a wedding? Who put all that together? Yes, God did. It's not that we have culturally things in common, but for some reason, every culture in the world has this thing called a wedding. And we didn't sit down culturally and compare notes and create this thing, but for some reason, every culture has a wedding. I believe this. Every wedding that takes place is a prophetic declaration of the coming of the bridegroom. That every time a woman and man get together and they have a wedding, that they're declaring out, come Lord Jesus. As a matter of fact, in case you didn't know it, the very last prayer ever prayed in the Bible is this. The bride and the spirit say come. The very last prayer, the very first miracle at a wedding, the bridegroom. The very last thing, a marriage supper of the Lamb. The very last prayer, the bride and the Spirit say, come. And every time a man and woman get married, it is a prophetic declaration. Just like, just like Hosea. Hosea's marriage was a prophetic declaration of, his relationship, of God's relationship with Israel. And every time there's a wedding and people are joined together in Messiah, it is a public declaration that there is a bride who is waiting for her bridegroom. Don't be surprised that now there's a huge attack against marriage. The closer we get to the end of time, the less marriages there will attempt to be made by the devil. And now men can marry men. That is an attack against the prophetic word of the bride and the bridegroom coming together. And women can marry women. Ladies and gentlemen, in case you didn't know this in Virginia, that is an abomination unto God. And now, maybe you've heard this now, but now we don't have babies anymore. We have babies. Have you heard about the new language? Yeah, the new language is being pushed out in our schools. Now we have babies and not babies. You heard the ABCs? Now we have the gay BCs. Do you know that? Why is it everything is sexual right now? The closer we get to the end of time and the more the bride and the spirit start working together to call forth the return of the Messiah, the more this prophetic declaration of husband and wife will be attacked in our nation. Now we have marriages on the way decline in America and living together on the increase in America. And there's a, now a blending together of truth and falsehood. And most of it centers around the nuclear family. Why is that? That is because as you get closer to the end of time, you will find more and more and more. There's a bridegroom revelation, a bride revelation that is meant to meet in the book of Revelation where they cry out together. Have you not read in the Bible where it says, and the bridegroom is going to come. Why? Because the bride has made herself ready. How many know when Jesus returns, he's coming back for a spotless what? Bride. He's coming back for a spotless bride. So the motivation for his return is for a bride. Notice the Bible doesn't say the army and the spirit say come. The flock and the spirit say come. The body and the spirit say come. 
Although all those revelations are true. And we have much easier time relating to those type of things, I think. The Bible says we're an army, but it doesn't say he's coming back for a spotless, strong army. I know some of you guys out there that were not in the army have a hard time saying, I'm a Navy man, I can't identify as being an army. But you know what I'm talking about. We have this understanding. And all these revelations of who we are in Christ don't fall away. They merely compound as we get closer to the end of days. And then you have the ultimate, which is this covenantal relationship. It's just like covenants. Covenants don't fall away. You know, people will say things like this. We're not under the old covenant. And when they say that, I always ask them, which one? Because what we don't know or maybe we don't think about is there's a whole bunch of covenants that are old. Let's ask this question. Are we still under the Noahic covenant? Is God ever going to flood the earth again? Why? Because he made a covenant. So when the new covenant came along, it didn't knock Noah's covenant out of the way, did it? Is Abraham a covenant still going on today? You better hope so. The reason why Israel exists today is because God made a covenant with Abraham. So the new covenant, when it came along, it didn't knock out Abraham's covenant. What about the Davidic covenant? Is the Davidic covenant still in play today? The covenant with David is you're always going to have an ancestor who will sit, or a descendant who will sit upon the throne of Israel and rule over the land of Israel. How many of Jesus, the reason why Jesus is going to sit on the throne is because God made a covenant with David. So the new covenant didn't knock out David, didn't knock out Abraham, didn't knock out Noah, but we sure like knocking out Moses. I mean, think about it for a moment. None of these covenants disappeared. They merely layered on top of each other until you have the new covenant come along and bound them all together. You say, well, what about all the stuff in the, in, in the, in the old covenant? I, I, I get a big kick out of a lot of people saying, we're not under the old covenant. Not a, why, why is it always from the south? We're not under the old covenant. I don't have shingles on my head. Whatever. And this, I've heard people say this. We're not under the old covenant, but we're joint heirs with Christ. Now let's go look at our blessing. And they go to Deuteronomy 28. Which is, Moses, which is what Moses wrote. Are you serious? This <laughs> happens consistency. The problem with that is there are over 60 times in the law of Moses that says this is forever. How many of you have everlasting life? If everlasting life for you means non-ending, then whenever everlasting, everlasting covenant is actually in the Bible, it must mean everlasting. If our theology doesn't work, if our theology only works one way and not the other way, then we have a hypocritical theology we have to work on here. The point is this. Everything works together. The fact that we can't synthesize that is our problem, not the Bible's. The new covenant doesn't get rid of anything. It actually causes it to mesh together and makes it stronger. All the revelations God has given us about being righteous and being healed and being an army and being a body, all these things, they don't go away when the revelation of the bride comes along and the bridegroom, but they all blend together and they strengthen each other and we go out of here as the bride of Messiah. In a covenantal relationship, this was expected. This was expected. Look what Jeremiah chapter 2 verse number 2 says. Jeremiah goes on to say, he says, can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Jeremiah 2.32, I'm sorry, 2.32. Or a bride her attire? Of course, he's a rhetorical. It means, no, they can't. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. He is in pursuit. How many know the great Matthew 24 chapter? Matthew 24 we see Matthew 24 as many of the prophecies regarding the end of time. 
Matthew 24 is going to wrap things up. The end of time is going to come along. In Matthew 24, it tells us that. But how many know that verses and, and chapters are not added to your Bible until the 1500s? So your Bible used to be written, read as one big long letter. So in other words, Matthew 25 goes with Matthew 24. Matthew 25 begins Jesus' last public discourse before the cross. And right after he mentions all this stuff in Matthew 24, the first thing he says in Matthew's gospel, chapter number 25, verse number 1, is this. Matthew 25, verse 1 says this. Matthew 25, verse number 1. And I don't have it written down. I'm just pulling this out of my heart. And what does it say? Matthew 24, all the end of time is coming. And then he tells parables to illustrate Matthew 24. And the first parable he tells is, this is what it's going to be like. The virgins are going out to meet their bridegroom. When Messiah returns, he's coming as a bridegroom ready for his bride. I want to invite you on a journey of intimacy with God in a, a time of prayer and worship and adoration and meditation, a depth, a relationship. Maybe you've not known before, but God is calling deep unto deep. And he's calling us to search him out and to find him and to embrace him and to take this moment to develop this relationship. Because truly, when the Bible says, as you know, at the end of time when God separates the goats and the sheep in his hands, and one group says, I did this, and I did that, and I did the other thing. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. The word know there, to know, is the word yada, and it means to have an intimate relationship with you. If we're more about what we do than who we are, if we're more about accomplishing tasks than developing relationship, we're going to find ourselves checking things off a list without ever checking our heart in the midst. And I believe this is what the Lord is calling us to, this intimate, personal relationship that is beyond anything we have ever known. We just read the story about the, 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 the turning the water into wine. Let's put this into a, a timeline, a context. So Go back to John chapter 2. This is right as he's done all this. And this is the time frame. This is the time context that this is in. John chapter number 2, verse number 13. So chapter 12, verse 2, verse 12 ended our story. And verse 13 says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went into Jerusalem. This is important. It's important to know the timing of him making wine and the Passover. Passover has been substituted, as you know, over the years with Easter, and we've not done any favors with preaching about a gender-confused rabbit. You have a rabbit named Peter who lays eggs like a girl. Just think about that for a minute. It said, I mean, where, you know, where, 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 the, where the Christians are chasing the Easter ham, the Jews are chasing the Passover lamb. How many know we need to make a switch here somewhere? But the point is this. That this is what he did was in context of Passover, and why is that important? Because what mo most people don't don't realize is this: that at Passover every year at Passover, in every synagogue around the world, in every Jewish home that is observant in any way, when they celebrate Passover, with every feast that's celebrated, there's also a book that's read. So they attach a book to be read with every 
feast. And you would assume that because this is Passover, you would read the book of Exodus. Because, after all, the book of Exodus is where the story happened. And truly, the story of Exodus is told during the Passover meal. But at the end of the Passover meal, a book is taken out, and this book is read. During the Passover week, this is the book that's read in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And believe it or not, the book they read in the synagogues is the Song of Solomon. The book that's read at the end of the Passover meal in every home is the Song of Solomon. At Passover? Why in the world would you be reading the Song of Solomon at Passover? What does the Song of Solomon have that would even apply to this? Well, quite honestly, we have so shunned this book of Song of Solomon because of all the body parts in it, we just don't want to talk about the thing. So what did the Jewish people know that we long forgot? And that is the book of Song of Solomon is about a bride and a groom in pursuit of each other. And they know that the Passover is when God bought us with a price. And we became his. And so in the midst of this whole Passover service, we realized that the bridegroom God was, an, was after his people, his bride. And so we read the story and we celebrate the fact that there is a bridegroom who has a bride and he's so after her. How many of you have ever heard the phrase before you've been bought with the price? That's, that's, that's bride ceremonial language. That's what God did here. You may know this already, but there are four cups that you drink at Passover. There are four cups. The first cup is called the cup of sanctification. The next one is called the cup of, of, um, of plagues. And the next one then is called the, the cup of redemption. And the last one is called the cup of praise. The, middle, the third one is the cup that Jesus picked up. And he takes that because you take that third cup, the cup of redemption. That cup is the cup that you take with that piece of bread and you put them together and you eat them together. As a matter of fact, if you've never heard about the Passover story, it goes, this is a very condensed version. At the very beginning of the Passover meal, the leader will take a white bag, one piece of material. He opens up the bag, and there are three compartments in it, one bag in three parts. Inside each compartment is an identical piece of bread. The middle piece is pulled out. The middle piece is striped and pierced. Does anybody know anybody who was three in one in the middle striped and pierced? He pulls that bread out. That bread is broken. Half of it is put back into the bag, put to the side, the bag is never used again in the entire service, and the rabbis have no idea why. The other piece that was three in one, striped, broken, pierced, is now wrapped in a white linen cloth and buried. At the end of the meal, when they've gone through the other cups, at the end of the meal, the leader will take the cup of redemption, and he'll call for Resurrection. I don't know about you, but this is much better than peeps. <laughs> Hello? He takes the third cup, which is the cup of redemption. He calls for the resurrection. The children typically run. They find it. They bring this resurrected bread. Typically, it's under a cushion or under a blanket or something like that. They don't actually bury it in the ground. They cover it. They Bring it, they run, they bring it to the father, the one that was three in one, pierced, striped, broken, wrapped, buried, raised. And they go to give it to the father. And rise, the father reaches out to grab it. The kid pulls it back and says, uh-uh, you got to buy it for silver. 
Anybody know anybody's body who was sold for silver? The father pays silver. He takes it and he unwraps it. Jesus holds that piece of bread up. He says, this bread is my body. The gospel in a bag. They take that bread and they compare it with the cup of redemption. That is what we now have as, as the communion meal. The moment you disconnect communion from the Passover meal, you've misunderstood all that Passover is all about or communion is about. But the point is that this particular cup, it's called the cup of redemption, but it also has another name. Just like the American flag has names. We have, we have the, the, flag, the American flag, Old Glory, Stars and Stripes, the Star Spangled Banner. It's all the same thing. Well, this cup is called the cup of redemption, but it's also called the Birkat Erosin. Can everybody say that? Birkat Erosin. And it means the cup of betrothal. Why is it called the cup of betrothal? Why do we read the Song of Solomon at Passover? Because they remember what we long have forgotten. This is all about a groom in pursuit of his bride. It always has been. It always will be until the day that the bride and the spirit cry out and say, come, Lord Jesus. Think about the story of the Bible. Is it not always centered around a bride and a groom? Think about it. In the beginning, you have Adam and Eve. You move along time, and of course, their children. Then, of course, you're going to have Noah and his wife and their children. Then you move a little further along, further along then you're going to have Abraham and Sarah and their children. You move a little further along, then you're going to have Isaac, Rebecca, their children. You move a little further along, you're going to have Jacob, his wives, and their children. Keep on falling down until you finally have Judah and his children, and eventually you have Messiah and the church. The storyline is always around a bride and a groom. Song of Solomon at Passover, it's a book to be avoided. Not to be read. When we take communion, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Yes, it very much is. As a matter of fact, just a few short weeks later, and before, I, before I get to that, go, go with me to the book of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 4. So, so, so we all know Solomon writes this, and, and the Jewish rabbis said long before Jesus was ever born that this is God, and Sol, Solomon's playing the part of God, and then the Shulamite is the, the bride, and the bride and the groom are getting together. This is the pursuit of God and his people, and they always understood that God was the bridegroom. This is why it's so important that when Jesus said, I am the bridegroom, he was saying, I am God. He was revealing, the first miracle he did, he was revealing himself as the bridegroom. And everybody who heard him knew it. He was the God. He was God. He was the Messiah. God, look what it says here to Solomon. We all talk about the heart of David. I want you to listen to what it says here about Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 29 through 32. And God gave Solomon, we all know God gave Solomon wisdom, but look what it says. And God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding. We pretty much stopped there. But look what else it says. And he gave him largeness of heart like the sand of the seashore. Why would he do that? Because what was about to happen is Solomon through the, his heart that was so huge and so large like the sand of the seashore was going to pour forth the love story of God's pursuit of his people. As a matter of fact, it goes on to tell us this. Next verse. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east 
and of Egypt. Next verse. For he was wiser than all the men that, that, of, of Ethan, Ezra, and, and Herman, or Heman, and uh, Kahol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol, and all the fame that was in the surrounding nations. Next verse. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And we have one. This heart was like the sand of the seashore when it came to the things of God. And he poured forth from this huge heart songs of praise. And the Holy Spirit says, this one is the one. It's called, actually in Hebrew, it's not called the Song of Solomon. It's called the Shurim Asherim. It's called the Song of Songs. It's like the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. It's the Song of Songs. In other words, it's the greatest song ever. We're all like, what? We stay away from that song. But the Holy Ghost said, it's the greatest. As a matter of fact, the rabbi said this, where all the Bible is kadosh, it's holy. But the Song of Solomon is the kadosh kadushim. The Song of Solomon is the holy of holies. What do they know that we have forgotten about? They saw a bridegroom in pursuit of his bride. Jesus comes to say, this is who I am, and my pursuit is ongoing. The rabbis go on to say this, that the earth did not, the universe did not find its validation for existence until the day Song of Solomon was written. So holy, so precious was that. Everybody would hear it read, but you were not even allowed to read it yourself until you were 30 years old. And how old was Jesus when he entered the ministry? He was 30 years old. I want you to know there's a thread that runs through your Bible. In one chapter you see, dearly beloved, we're gathered together. In the next chapter you see, for what God has joined together, no man put us on the next chapter you see, whatever, I can't remember my marriage ceremony. But nonetheless, you get what I'm saying. Throughout the whole book, you find the same narrative being pushed through. Look what happens here when John first meets up with Jesus. Let's go to John's Gospel, chapter number 3. So this is the very beginning of John's Gospel. John has already seen Jesus. He already declares him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's already declared him to be the Messiah. But then when people begin to go after Jesus, the disciples of John come to him. They don't know anything about Jesus yet other than he was the one that John designated, but they don't know exactly what he's all about. They don't know much about him. This is what happens here in their discourse in verse number 26. It says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the one who was beyond the Jordan to whom you were testifying, behold, he's baptizing and everybody is going to him. And John answered and said, A man cannot receive anything unless it's given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said I am not the Christ, but I'm sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. And the friend of the bridegroom hears his voice, and I rejoice, and my joy is full. What is John's first description of Jesus after he declares him to be the Messiah? What's his first description? He says, he is the bridegroom. 
He's the one we've been waiting for. It's okay they're leaving me because, of course, the bridegroom has the bride. Of course the people are going to him because the people are the bride. He is the bridegroom. This is what we've been waiting for. And then he says in the next verse, verse three, he must increase and I decrease. My ministry is over. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. His first description of who Jesus was. And get this, the disciples go, okay. The disciples had no problem asking questions in the Bible. Have you noticed that? But nobody goes, huh? Bridegroom, what are you talking about? Explain that to us. They all understood it. Because from a baby, they all heard one day, our bridegroom is coming, and he's going to get us the bride. One day, the bridegroom will come, and when he shows up, we will be his bride, his people. So he could say very clearly, the bridegroom, and everybody understood it. He's God. He's here. He's come to get us. As Passover rolls on, you come to the next feast. It's the Feast of Pentecost. When the Holy Ghost was poured out in Acts chapter 2, Holy Ghost poured out. The first Pentecost was Exodus chapter 20 when the law was given from the mountain, first Pentecost. You might expect that on that day, the book that they read as a prescribed reading for that feast day would be Exodus and the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. And truly, they do read portions of that. But that's not the book they attach to the moment. The book that is prescribed reading that Jesus would have heard growing up as a little boy every time Pentecost happened. He would have heard, not only would have heard Song of Solomon, and I'm sure he's sitting there saying, that's my story. I am the bridegroom. I can't wait to go and get my bride. He would hear it every year. That's my story. That's my story. Well, at Pentecost, as Pentecost rolls around, they pull out and they read the book of Ruth. Why would you read the book of Ruth at Pentecost? Because there is a Jewish groom coming to get a Gentile bride, and God is going to bring the Gentiles into faith in the one true God by the Holy Ghost. A bride and a bridegroom at the feast of the Lord. Yes, maybe that's why when the Holy Ghost pulled out these 17 days, he made sure three-fourths of them were happening at feast days. The line, the thread runs through the whole thing from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And the song that they're singing in the book of Revelation is from Psalm 118. What does that tell us? Quite simply, the next feast that rose around is called the Feast of Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, where now the dwelling place of God is with men. And at the Feast of Tabernacles, what song do we sing at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles? Psalm 18. You see, the book of Revelation is filled with the story, the illustration of the bride and the bridegroom. This becomes the cry. Messiah said, this is the coming of the end of the world, like a bride and a bridegroom who go out to meet each other. This is the way it's going to be. We start with the wedding at Canaan. We end with the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have our last prayers of bride, the, the bride and the spirit rejoicing together and shouting out together. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, if you know what to listen for, you can hear the wedding ceremony throughout the entire Bible. And just like we got revelation that we were 
an army and that we were the body and that we were the church and that we were holy and that we were righteous. We've got all kinds of revelations and those stack and strengthen and stack and strengthen. But the very seemingly the last one, right as he comes out, right as he comes forth, right as things are about to end, it seems like the one that is the top of the heap is when the bride gets a revelation of who she is in covenant relationship with the bridegroom. And these people, when John says the bridegroom has the bride, they didn't say anything because they all understood what he was saying. Now, we all under, we've heard many, many, many times that we are the bride of Christ, but do we really understand what that means? God is calling us into a love relationship, into a pursuit with him, into a, a prayer life and a study life and a worship time with him, unlike anything we've ever had before. We're not talking about, you know, spending, oh, I gotta, I'm, I'm timing my time with God. Okay, I got to spend an hour with God. You know, gentlemen, if you did that with your wife, she'd haul off and love on you really hard. <laughs> but we got it down to a formula. Wrote. It's the way we do things. Doesn't sound like a passionate relationship of a bride and a bridegroom that are always thinking of. You know what meditation is? Always thinking about your bridegroom. When you were in love with your wife in the beginning, hopefully it's the same way now, but you thought about her all the time. You thought about him all the time. Everywhere, everywhere you looked, you kept thinking, you kept thinking, you kept thinking. That's meditation on him. Oh, I'm thinking about him. Are you in love with Jesus today? I pray that that's more than just a word and an affirmation out of your mouth, but you really feel it. You know, we've demonized emotions, but ladies and gentlemen, your God is a jealous God. Why would he be jealous? I'm not jealous of Glenda if she hauls off and kisses uh, Greg. Did I say haul off? There's different dynamics of people's relationships, and I know them quite well. So I mean, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't bother me if she kisses Greg. doesn't bother me if she pats him and, and tells him compliments that are completely unjustified. It doesn't, none, of that, none of that bothers me. None of that bothers me. But if Loretta did that to Greg, do you think that would bother me? Why? Because she's mine. The reason your God is a jealous God is because you are his. And his emotion is justified. Our emotions, when they get out of control, become a problem. And emotions in themselves, God said, this is good. I'm almost finished. In a very practical way, this is just something I feel like I just want to kind of put in here. In our prayer time, in our study time, in our fasting time, in our seeking God, in our meditation. Again, it's all in this, in this pursuit of relationship. Not formula, not rote, but a relationship that moves us into covenantal position with the Lord. We, we reign and we rule together as, as groom and bridegroom in the kingdom of the Lord. And look what it says here in Matthew's gospel, chapter number 9. He's encountering the Pharisees and the scribes as he always did, and he always had issues with them, as you know. But look what it says here in chapter number 9, verse 12 and 13. He said, when Jesus, when, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And we've all heard that verse before. But what about this next one? It says, but go 
and learn. Everybody say, go and learn. He said, go and learn what this means. How many of Jesus is telling you to go and learn something? That might be a good place to start. Go and learn this. This is a Hebrew form of teaching called remez. It's the way the Hebrew uh, rabbis would always teach. It's a hint. It's called remez means hinting. It's hinting at the larger context. He pulls out this verse here, and guess where he's quoting from? He's quoting from the book of Hosea, the man who married a prostitute, showing the relationship between God and his people. And God was going to have mercy on her because of her fallen ways, because he was the bridegroom and she was the bride. He said, go, learn what this means. And if that's not clear enough for them, then he's going to go on to say to them this, next verse. As a matter of fact, I'm going to say this to you. Hosea, this is a little quick, little quick linguistic, linguistic lesson. You know, the Bible says that he will call his name Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. He, his, Jesus' name is, in Hebrew, his name is Yeshua. Okay? There was no J. Nobody ever called him Jesus. There was no J in, in actually, there is no J in Hebrew, period. Uh, there was no J in English language until the 1600s. So even the first King James Bible doesn't spell Jesus' name with a J. It's with an I. I-E. It produces the word E-E. So at any rate, so he, that was just a free language lesson that will cost you $5 in the offering. Okay, so, um, so his name is Yeshua. What, the word Yeshua means to save. Uh, the word, the word Hoshia means salvation. So when he says you'll, you'll call his name Jesus because he will save, so you said you would actually have said he would have said you will call his name Yeshua because he will Yoshia his people. It's a rhyme in Hebrew. Well, there's a book of your Bible, and both the word Yoshia and Yeshua are actually the same word pronounced from different ones verb and ones a noun, but they're the same word. In your Bible, you have a Bible called the Book of Jesus, and it's the Book of Hosea. Because in Hebrew, it's the word Yoshia. The book of Yoshia, the book of Hosea, is quoted in your Bible statistically more than any other book in the Old Testament. Now, Isaiah will be quoted more, Psalms more, that's because statistically there's more of it. But if you look at the, the total number of passages and compare that over, Hosea, percentage-wise, is quoted more than any other book of the Bible in the Old Testament in the New. He says, go and learn what this means. I'm the bridegroom. You're a harlot. You've left me, and I'm after you. They said, why do your Pharisees, he says, why do the Pharisees, then the disciples of John came, so John's disciples were there, he says, why, why do the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast? I, I don't see your people fasting at all. He says in the next verse, Jesus said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The reason you fast is because the bridegroom has gone away. I'm fasting for this and I'm fasting for that. That's true. We can fast for things. But at the end of the day, fasting is us <clears throat> causing our body to mourn. And the reason why we're doing that is because the bridegroom isn't here anymore. He, Messiah said, listen, yes, you're going to fast when I'm not here. But as long as I'm here, you have complete access to my presence. And with access to my presence, you can ask what you want, whatever you want, and I am right here. But there's a day coming where I'm not going to be physically present with you. And in those days, when the bridegroom is taken away, that's when you are fast. He goes on to say, but the day will come. Go back to the previous one. But the day will come, he says, when the bridegroom will be taken away. Next verse. 
from them. Then they will fast. The only reason why fasting is applicable today is because a bridegroom is gone. It's a bridegroom-based, a bridegroom-focused, a bridegroom-founded practice that we do. When the bridegroom is here, we don't fast. Why? Because we're not in mourning. We're not grieving anymore. He's there right there with us. His presence is here. But when he is not here, that's when we fast. I want you to understand the next time you're fasting, you're fasting in part, keeping in your mind, keeping in your meditation. A part of why you're doing what you're doing is because the bridegroom is not here right now. It's a part of why we do the things that we do. I'm almost finished here. I'm going to end with this particular verse of Scripture. I want you to pay, also, also want you to say, well, let's, let's, let's read a couple more here. And then they will fast. And get this, after they say this, the disciples who always asked all the questions all the time, nobody said, uh, could you explain what that means? They didn't go to him privately and say, uh, explain this whole bridegroom thing. You know, they asked lots of questions, but they never asked one question about the bridegroom because they all understood it already. And then he goes on to say this, the next verse. Does anyone put a, a shrunk cloth on an old garment? Now we, in our mind, our mind goes to, you know, uh, hee-haw and um, uh, patches and all that. But maybe it's something different. For the patch pulls away the garment and it tears and made it worse. Next verse. You don't put new wine in old wineskins. He goes back to the wine again. Why? Because he's the bridegroom. Or else you would, the wineskins would break. The wine is spilled out and the wineskins are ruined. But they took, put new wine into new wineskins and they are both preserved. He just said he was a bridegroom. And now he mentions once again the wine. Last is go to Ephesians chapter 5. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 5. We'll read verse 25 to 32, and I'll be closing with these particular verses. My objective today, I believe by the Holy Spirit, was to introduce to you an end-time reality, an end-time revelation that I believe may not be fully into the body yet, but I believe that it's coming. I believe it is the end-time revelation that you see happening over and over again throughout the Scriptures, as Jesus said from Matthew 24, Matthew 25, as you see happening throughout the book of Revelation, as you see the introduction and the conclusion, the marriage supper, the land, and so forth, lamb, and so forth. So I'm asking you today, I'm inviting you today into a relationship, a pursuit with God, a relationship pursuit in prayer and fasting, and, and, and let it be a time of glory and joy and spending time worshiping him, building relationship with him. I encourage you, find a time that when you pray, you ask nothing for yourself other than to know him more. Because sometimes if we're not careful, our time with the Lord is filled with what we want, what we need, when we need it, how we want it. But a fellowship that is built out of nothing except relationship. How often do we pray that way? You know, the Bible says that God went down in the cool of the day and met with Adam. And they talked. You ever wonder what they talked about? Adam was perfect. He had full use of 100% of his brain as opposed to the 10 or 12 that we have today. His wife was perfect. He was as just as much of a superman as she was a wonder woman. Every, when an Adam walked by, lions bowed low as the king of the earth walked by. There were no weeds. There were no thistles. There were no thorns. 
He had no need. Everything was perfect. Yet God still felt it important to go down and talk with him. About what? He has nothing to ask him, nothing to plead for, nothing to petition for, except to create a relationship with the Ancient of Days. The Bible says he went down in the cool of the day. The Hebrew doesn't say it. The, the, Bible, the Hebrew says he went down in the Ruach Hayom. The Ruach Hayom means in the spirit of the day. I believe there's a fellowship of the spirit that took place there. Ephesians 5, verse 25 to 32, and we'll close here. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Does anybody hear wedding language here? Many times in our wedding ceremonies. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That he might present herself, her, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she should be holy without blemish. So ought husbands to love their own wives as he loves their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For the one that even no one's ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Where are we quoting from? We're quoting from the book of Genesis, from the garden. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. We have a bridegroom who is on his way for his bride. And I encourage you to begin now cultivating a bride-bridegroom relationship of intimacy, love, passion, and pursuit. Because I do believe that one day we, hopefully, will be among those who will join the Spirit as the bride and cry out and say, come, Lord Jesus. Can you say amen? Let's stand together, please, as we pray. <clears throat> Father, we are so grateful to be in your house today, Father. And I just pray, Lord God, for an intensity in our heart, Father, of a love and a passion, Lord God, of relationship with you, Lord God, where we, we truly pursue, Father God, not things, not this, not that, but we pursue the one who is our bridegroom. We pursue the one who is the lover of our soul. We, pers we pursue the one who is the essence of the Song of Solomon, the focus of the book of Ruth, the one who is there in the midst of nothing, the one who is there in the very beginning. We thank you, Lord for all that you are. I pray, Lord God, for a revelation that would begin to manifest in the heart of your people, of each and every one, Lord, of who you are, of the pursuit and the calling you've given each one of us to, to walk out. You, to pursue you, a revelation of you and of what you've made us. If there's anybody in the house this morning that has never made Jesus the Lord of your life, then this is your greatest moment. If you've never made Jesus Lord of your life, then you're actually, you're, you're not a part of this great company of believers in the end. You're not a part of the bride of Messiah yet, but you're being drawn. You're being called to join this great company. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that God raised you from the dead, and you want to confess him as Lord of your life, then I encourage you to make that declaration this morning with me. Is there anybody here who says, Pastor, pray for me because I've never made Jesus Lord of my life, and I want to do that. Would you be so bold as to raise your hand? Let me see who you are so we can pray together. Is there anybody on the house? 
<clears throat> or maybe there's some people who've been too timid to raise their hand this morning. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray a prayer. I want you all to pray it with me. And if you pray this prayer for the first time, why don't you go to someone afterwards and tell them about this. So let's pray this together. If you agree with these words, repeat them after me. Say, Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died on the cross to save me from my sin. I believe that you raised him from the dead. And I confess Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Receive me, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you pray that for the very first time, please make sure you come and see Pastor Greg or one of the other leaders here this morning. Let them know that you prayed that prayer. Thank you for receiving my lovely wife and I this morning. God bless you all. Hopefully we'll see you again at some point in the future. Amen.